Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Continuing in our consideration of um, the Lord's Day, first day of the week, covered a lot of ground over a long period of time, longer than I expected, but that's okay. Um, and we're arriving now at the, at the question of the basis for the change of the weekly day of worship for God's people from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Now, I think most Christians instinctively and rightly so say, well, Christians gather on the first day of the week because of the resurrection of the Son of God. And I think last week I said, that's no small matter. We, don't, we shouldn't say, oh, because of the resurrection of Christ, we should say, because of the resurrection of the Son of God. But a lot of people don't kind of think through that. So why would the resurrection of the Son of God be so uh, epic-changing that a transfer of from the seventh to the first day uh, of the application of the fourth commandment would come about because of it? What is it that, uh, that, that marks the resurrection as so powerful as to alter the application of the fourth commandment from the seventh day to the first day? It's a good question. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, and I think Paul answered that question for us, but it's not very easy to understand. If you ever read, read, read Hebrews or other of Paul's letters and you go, man, some of this is hard to understand, um, you're right. And I know you're right because God told me the same thing through Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. So if I'm going to read a chapter or so from Hebrews. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 1, because I want to set the context for Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. And if you don't understand everything that I read, it's okay. Uh, and after I preach this sermon and part two in the second hour, it'll still be okay if you don't understand everything that's going on there. Okay, We've got to understand the main points, and I think they're relatively easy to understand. The context of the whole book is that Paul is addressing, uh, I think, the same audience that Peter wrote, at least Second Peter 2 and I think First Peter 2, Jews and Gentiles that were outside of Palestine throughout some place in the Roman uh, Empire. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 15, says, as he wrote to you, the same recipients. I think that's a reference to the book of Hebrews. And he's encouraging them not to go backwards uh, as if the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ didn't have any implications on, on the Old Testament's regulations for the covenant people of God in terms of sacrifices and, and, and calendars and all those things. So you know, if you've read Hebrews, we have a better covenant based on better promises. We have, uh, we have a better uh, priest, priesthood. We have a better mediator, Moses being the mediator of the old. Christ being the mediator of the new, I would say as well we have a better Sabbath because our Sabbath gets us close, closer to the unending Sabbath of the eternal state. So let's read chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, okay, Moses, and Christ, he's going to be talking about now. As Moses also was faithful in all his, if you have a New American Standard, capitalized, God's house, for he also, excuse me, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He is capitalized, Christ, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Oh. God built the people of God, the house of God in the Old Covenant, and Moses was a servant in it. God is ultimately the builder. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Now watch this. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses is stationed by God in one sense in order to indicate that something in the future is going to come that's related to what Moses did. But reading the whole Bible, we can say, but much greater, something greater than Moses is here. Moses is a type. The people of God under the old covenant are a type of something better. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house? We are. That is, we are Christ's house. We are Christ's building. God's building, 1 Corinthians 3. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Even though they saw his works, they're not going to enter his rest. Take care, brethren, that they're not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one uh, one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, unbelievers. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But notice what he says. Present believers have entered a rest that God was talking about a long time ago. You're going, huh? There's actually three rests in this, divine rests in this passage, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Ooh. Now he's going way back, right? To the works of creation. So we have rest, work, creation. They're all together here. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Where's that? Genesis 2.2. Resting, working, working, resting. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, Psalm 95. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, this God's rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, 
he again fixes a certain day today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. It's clear, isn't it? It's a difficult passage. You've probably read it before and struggled with it. I wanted to read this brief section of this book I mentioned earlier. He kind of does an overview of that in just a a little paragraph, and I wanted to uh, read that to you. It was really, really helpful for me. Kind of drills down into what's most important. He says, let the whole passage, Hebrews 4, 1 through 10 is what he's concentrating on, be attentively read. I insert a few words of parentheses to convey the interpretation of the best commentators. Uh, He gives a list of who he thinks the best commentators are. John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Timothy Dwight, Scott, uh, forgot his first name, and then others. Here it is. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us by the gospel of entering into his rest, that of the Lord Christ, any of you should seem to come short of it. For we which have believed do not enter into rest, do enter rest, that is, the Christian Sabbath and rest as a pledge and preparation of the heavenly. For he spake in a certain place, Genesis 2.2, of the seventh day in this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And this place again, Psalm 95.11, If they shall enter into my rest, there remaineth therefore a rest, a day of sabbatical rest in earth and heaven, and the one the pledge of the other for the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, even Jesus Our Lord, the author of all this new creation, he also hath ceased from his own works of redemption and new creation, as God did from his of the old creation. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest of heaven, of which our Christian weekly Sabbath is a pledge and foretaste, lest any man shall, after the same example, lest any man fall after the same example, and foretaste. Now, you don't even have to understand everything he was saying, but if you get the gist of what he's saying, uh, I'd, I'd be happy. I, I think it was helpful, really brief, really short on this. So I'm going to concentrate this morning and the two sermons on Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So there, uh, this is the New American Standard. So there remains a Sabbath rest, some of the versions don't translate it that way. I'll tell you why I think that's the better translation. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So we have to put this in context first, okay? We'll put it in context, then I'll look at it in detail somewhat detail, and then draw out some uh, observations from it. So beginning at 3.7, the author, I think Paul, mentions the concept of rest using Psalm 95 and Genesis 2.2 to frame his discussion all the way through 4.11. So we already read the passage, but you could see the word rest, 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 rest. And then I mentioned Genesis 2.2 and Psalm 95. I don't think I said verse 11, but it is Psalm 95.11. It is good to remind ourselves that the conclusion in that, excuse me, 4.9 is actually a conclusion. See the first word? So, or therefore, 
there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's building his case, and 4.9 is a conclusion. And then 4.10, first word in the New American Standard, for the reason he can state the conclusion. And we'll get there in a moment. But all this to say it's an argument that precedes the verses itself, and we want to understand texts in their proper context. That which remains is assumed to be related to the previous discussion. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The assumption is, whatever this means, it's related to what he already said. And what he already says is infused with the concept of rest, both by God and by God's people, interestingly. In fact, in light of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, that's what, this is why I read the whole chapter, and the first word of 3, 7, therefore, entering into rest is connected to Christ being over his house, whose house we are, believers, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Remember I made reference to God is the builder of all things. Uh, God built the old covenant people of God, his, his old house, including the tabernacle and temple. Moses was a servant in it, and yet he's comparing what Moses was with Christ. And he also says what Moses was actually sets up Christ or points to Christ. But Christ is the builder of his own house. I will build my church, Jesus said. And here we have Christ as a builder of his church, of his people. What follows in Hebrews 3, 7 and following is dependent upon what 3, 1 through 6 says. Here's the way John Owen kind of tries to help us sort through this. He says, Hebrews 3, 3 and 4 expressly asserts the Son to be God and shows the analogy that is between the creation of all things and the building of the church, that is, the works of the old and new creation. Okay? Remember reading from that little book. He used that language, old creation, new creation. As then God wrought in the creation of all, so Christ, who is God, wrought in the setting up of this new church state. This is what Paul's arguing here especially to Jewish believers in the first century. The Son of God has set up a new church state. Now, not with Rome. He is the monarch of this church state, okay? The Son of God set up this new church state with new ordinances, with, with, with new elements of worship, with with elements of worship that are conditioned by the fulfillment of the old elements in him. He set up this new church state. He's building this thing, and it uh, has a rest preferred to it, an ultimate rest in the, in the heavens that was actually preferred by, preferred by God to Adam at the creation, remember the divine rest can't be because God's exhausted. If God took six days in order that Adam might follow his maker in labor, in work, work six days, and then God didn't create on the seventh day, did something else, he rested. Uh, uh, that What does that mean for creatures but that we are to also rest, cease from our normal labors? But is that it? If we tease it, the whole thing out, we're going, no, there's more to it than that. The assumption, putting all the Bible together and focusing its lens upon the Genesis account would say this. God is actually proferring a better state of existence for Adam if he works and completes his work without sinning. He'll get eschatological rest. So that actually starts at the beginning. So our what Christ's new church state does 
is it shifts some things into the mode of fulfillment, but it still has aspects of it, the church state of Christ, that still are pledges of glory to come. So if the first divine rest involved creatures or required creatures to rest with the hope of future rest, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, since the future rest isn't here, just as at the creation when God worked and then rested as a pledge of eschatological rest, so the Son of God has worked and has rested, entered his rest on the first day of the week, the first day of the new creation, the day on which he rose from the dead, and he has shifted the application of the fourth commandment to the first day, and it still, like the first Sabbath, has a pledge of glory, or is a temporal symbol or a pledge of more glory to come. So every Lord's Day when we come here, or wherever we might gather, or wherever whoever you might gather with in the name of Christ, according to the word of Christ, is a, is a pledge from Christ that if you think this is good, and sometimes church is good, you know, um, like last week, Psalm 15, wasn't that a great sermon? But if you, you know, you sit there, you're with the saints, you're singing, you hear the word read, your soul comes in dry and starts to get lubricated by the means of grace and, and you start to revive a little and you're, at some point you go, I'm so glad I came here. I, man, I, I needed this. This is marvelous and wonderful. Those are great experiences, but it ain't nothing, okay, compared to what we're going to get. But it is a pledge from God of more grace to come, more glory to come, the glorified state. I think this is what Paul's doing here. Notice in 3.5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So here we have Moses over there. What Moses did was a type of something better to come, things which were to be spoken later. Here's one man commenting. To the things that were afterwards to be spoken, namely, in the fullness of time, the appointed season by the Messiah, that is, the things of the gospel. And this, indeed, was the proper end of all that Moses did or ordered in the house of God. Moses paved the way for Christ. In Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, the author is arguing from Moses to Christ as the greater faithful servant of God over his own house. <clears throat> I read all day yesterday all the best stuff I have in my library on this stuff. And I brought like 19 pages of notes. Five pages gets me an hour usually. Now, if you were listening when I read the text of Hebrews, especially 3, 7 through 4, 11, you saw the word rest used many, many times, right? Uh, and I have said this before. You have God resting there. You have God's people resting. You have God proferring a rest that they didn't enter into because of unbelief. And you have somebody else resting in Hebrews 4, 9 especially verse 10, he who has entered his rest. You have God working and resting at creation in the passage. You have God working, and then once they enter Canaan, if you read the Psalms very carefully, I think it's Psalm 132, I forgot which Psalm it is. God identifies his rest in Canaan with his dwelling in the temple. That's very interesting. So we have a creational work and rest. We have a redemptive work, saving Israel out of Egypt, putting them in Canaan. By the way, you read the Old Testament real carefully. The promised land, Canaan, 
is described with what kind of language? Don't say Jesus. Edenic language, right? Now that's interesting, if true, and it is true. Edenic language, Canaan, temple, redemptive work, divine rest. There's work and rest by God at creation. There's work and rest by God in the complex of events that we call the inauguration of the older Mosaic covenant and with the second generation that got to actually go into the promised land. There's a rest there. And in both of these rests, these divine work slash rests, creatures are summoned to enter into rest and called to rest in the here and now by ceasing to do certain things and doing others. I think those are interesting observations. I'm not going to show you all the texts. Um, There's three rests in our passage. I've seen them before, but it wasn't until my fourth read, I think, of John Owen on this, because I've read one of the sections like four or five times. It's just so good that he identifies these rests, a creation rest connected with the covenant of works, A redemptive rest that's typological of Christ and his works connected to the older Mosaic covenant and a Christological rest connected to the inaugurated new covenant and the people of God. At some point, we actually need to look at the verses, don't we? So let me um, try to do that. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So that's the context. Having mentioned these divine rests, Hebrews 4 announces that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So here are some questions. Does this Sabbath rest for the people of God, whatever it means, does it relate to previous rests? I'm going to say yes. Is this rest related to a divine work? This Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. I'm going to say yes. If previous rests had a forward-pointing element to them, does this one? I'm going to say yes. And then also, the last question, who is this someone who has entered his rest in Hebrews 4.10? If you answer that question properly, which I'm going to try to help you do, um, I think a lot of what I've been saying just goes, oh, it just explodes. You go, okay, I don't see the whole thing, but I see enough. This is good stuff. Uh, Not because I said it, but because it's in the text. So first, note with me that verse 9 is a conclusion to previous discussion. That should be very clear. Therefore, or so, is the indicator in the original language that basically argues, uh, basically says, our functions as a concluding statement. So it's a conclusion drawn from what he has already been saying. So, or therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, upon what specifically is the conclusion based? Well, whatever he was talking about before, right? I think two themes seem to be picked up by Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 from the preceding discussion. The concept of remaining, that's another word that occurs several times in our passage, and the concept of rest, that is another word that occurs more times in our passage. There's something interesting, though, about rest here, because some of your versions are going to say there remains a rest for the people of God. It doesn't say Sabbath rest. The reason why the New American Standard translated it Sabbath rest is because the Greek word... uh, all throughout the passage is, uh, let me see here. I usually don't do this. Is it katapausis? I think it's katapausis. Yes, katapausis, katapausis. Doesn't matter what Greek word it is in one sense, but in another sense it is, because in 4.9 it's not katapausis. It's sabbatismos. Now, 
Even if you don't know Greek, you know that those two words sound different, don't they? And one of them, I've never heard katapausis. What does that mean? You know, but the other one, sabatismos, you're going, that sounds strangely familiar to me. I think I've heard that word before. So this concept of remaining and the concept of rest is in the context already, and it's picked up both in verse verse four, uh, verse nine, and verse ten. So that Hebrews four nine and ten are connected to the previous discussion is vital to keep in mind as we work our way through these verses. Okay. So the first thing I'm noticing here is this is a conclusion drawn from the previous discussion. Hebrews 4.9 is an inference based on the previous section or discussion. It finds as its basis the previous rests of God and the practical inferences for the people of God. Now, second observation on Hebrews 4.9. It's that bad, huh? Notice the essence of the conclusion. We just noticed one word, so or there, uh, therefore. But now, here's what he says. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In concluding what I've been saying about these divine rests and the implications for God's people of old, so, for you guys... For the now people of God, under the inaugurated new covenant, Jew or Greek, believers in Christ, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the question that pertains to our discussion is whether or not there remains, of Hebrews 4.9, refers to something exclusively future, because that's how some people read this. Oh, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, or a Sabbatismos. That's all in the future after Jesus comes. Some people take it that way. That, take it that way. Um, and there are like three views. Actually, I think there's four views on how to understand this. But it doesn't matter what the views are, right? We just want to drill down and what's the best view? What's, what's the, the, the view that corresponds with you know, the context and the words he uses? Some people take this, there remains, as a future thing. Um, But if you read the passage, the the word remains when it's translated uh, that way. Um, The same Greek word, when it's translated, remains, is something, most often if not always, for the people at the time that the word remains is referring to. So if it, it was referring to the people of under the Mosaic Covenant in Canaan, if they were supposed to remain, it was a then-remaining reality at their time. So if he uses the same word for us, the now people of God, there remains for us now a Sabbath rest. I think, I think that's the better way uh, to put it. Now, you remember the old Sabbaths were ends in and of themselves but we're tokens or pledges of the great Sabbath to come, right? So if there is a now Sabbath that yet remains, you'd think, well, if the old ones kind of were pointing beyond even us, then if this is this Lord's Day thing, if it's a Sabbath, if it can be called a Sabbath, then it also does the same thing, right? Because that to which the old Sabbath pointed to isn't here in its fullness yet. There's only one citizen of the new creation in body and soul so far. Well, there might be three, but that's a... Who is Elijah? Moses and Elijah. Those are weird cases, aren't they? But Jesus is the first citizen of the, that creation in its fullness uh, in miniature, in microcosm, we might say. So there remains, refers to the here and now, uh, for us. But third, notice that which remains is a Sabbath rest. Okay? I, I brought up that Greek word uh, translated by the New American Standard as Sabbath rest. It's used only here in, in, in Scripture. Some people think Paul invented a word. 
Paul invents words a lot, by the way. There's a technical uh, term that describes words used only once, and a lot of times they're words coined by the, the scriptural author. This is one of those. However, this word sabbatismos has various forms of it used by, some of you know what the LXX stands for, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, does use this word in many places Every single time, it refers to the keeping of the appointed Sabbath. It always refers to creatures keeping the appointed Sabbaths, whatever era they lived in. So he shifts, again, from that other word, translated rest, katapausis, excuse me, to... Another word translated rest, but Sabbath rest by the New American Standard, I think prop, uh, properly, sabbatismos. Why the shift is a, is a good question. Here's one answer, and I, I like it. The uniqueness of the word suggests a deliberate theological purpose. He selects or coins sabbatismos because in addition to referring to spiritual rest, it suggests as well an observance of that rest by a Sabbath keeping, because the promised rest lies ahead for the new covenant people. They are to strive to enter the future rest, yet as they do so, they anticipate it by continuing to keep a day of rest. So here's what he's saying. He says there's a day of rest, a Sabbath keeping, a Sabbath rest, but there's also something in the future that we're striving for, that others, because of unbelief, they didn't get that, and they didn't even get their earthly rest in the land of Canaan. Spiritual rest, he says, is involved with this Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's an important observation because it's not just, uh, all right, um, all we do on Sunday is not work. No, he's saying, look, no, Sundays are also a pledge of of that day. And so you say, well, I want to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. I mean, I'm not going to kill myself to, to do that, but I, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be in heaven. I want to be with the angel, elect angels and all the saints. And I'd rather be in the intermediate state than the current state. That's Paul's in Philippians 1. That's All that's great. But do you realize that Gathering on the Lord's Day with the people of God and the special presence of God is the closest thing you'll get to that or the intermediate state until you die. And you know what's... Well, anyway. Fourth, notice the party for whom a Sabbath rest remains. He calls them the people of God. If you've read your New Testament, you know that at least in two places, I think it's Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2, might be 1 Peter 1, um, both Paul and Peter go back to a prophecy in Hosea, you, are not, you were not my people, but now you are the people of God. You've heard that before, right? The New Testament does that at least twice, and it goes back to the language of Hosea, to describe Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ, the church, the, the, the now people of God, okay? The people of God refers to the church under the inaugurated new covenant. So the now people of God under the inaugurated new covenant have a Sabbath day to keep. But here's the question. This is like the million-dollar question. Um, why does there remain a Sabbath-keeping for the people of the inaugurated new covenant? If all that back there was pointing to Christ and his church or kingdom, and Christ has come and inaugurated his new covenant church or kingdom, why, why would we still have a Sabbath? The substance has arrived, right? The shadows were pointing toward to the real thing. It's Christ and his kingdom. 
Why would we, why, why do you still have a Sabbath? Here's the answer, because a new divine rest has been inaugurated and the not yet eternal rest of God in the eternal state is still future. The Sabbath rest of Hebrews 4.9 is for the people of God under the inaugurated new covenant. Fifth, notice how the author accounts for the remaining Sabbath rest for the people of God. Notice how he accounts for it. We might ask the question, why is this, why is there still remaining a Sabbath rest for the people of God? Because for, verse 10, that's a pretty important word. The function of that little word, for, is very important in order to account for how verse 10 relates to verse 9. This is, if you haven't figured it out yet, this is what you came for right here. Verse 10. This is it. Who's verse 10 about? If I asked a third grade Sunday school, and the answer would be, not you. Or me. That's the more, not traditional, it's the more common version of verse 10. It's, oh, he's talking about believers. I'm going to show you why my Scottish friends would say, no, can he do? It doesn't work that way. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for... Or because, listen to Jonathan Edwards, when it is said there remaineth a rest to the people of God in the original, it is Sabbatism or the keeping of a Sabbath. And this reason is given for it. For he that entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Because someone has entered into his rest and also rested from his works, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Everybody always knows what I'm going to say. Sixth, notice the identity of this someone who has entered his rest. A common view is that it refers to believers. Okay, I already mentioned that. Taken as referring to believers, the subsequent words, has himself also rested from his works, refers to the same believers. Okay, in other words, some understand this to mean that when believers have entered their or God's rest, they will have entered the Sabbath rest that remained for them to enter while still on the earth. See that? Yeah, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God after I die. In other words, taking Sabbath rest as holy future, we could read it this way. I want to be fair to this view because it's real and it's out there. I don't want to put up a straw man. We could paraphrase it this way. There remains a personal rest in the future, a personal Sabbath rest for the future when individual believers in Christ enter their rest, that is, when they cease from their works as believers, when they're either absent from the body and present with the Lord or in the eschatological state itself, in the new heavens and new earth. You get, you get that, that's where they, what, what others uh, have said about this verse. But taken this way, verse 10 would seem to be saying that there is a future rest until we rest in the future. Or something like that. It would be, you know, the technical word is tautological or ep-exegetical. Just expl- verse 10 just explains verse 9 in a different way. Um, I don't think so. I, because I made a big deal that word translated for. That's a huge word in verse 10. If your version has that uh, uh, word translated first, I think it's good for emphasis. Remember, the word for introduces us to the basis for verse 9, which is a conclusion based on previous conversation. Based on previous conversation conclusion, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Then the question is, why? Or what's the basis for that thing? For, that's verse 10. He's going to tell us how he can conclude that from the previous conversation. 
The conclusion stated in verse 9 is, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The basis for this conclusion is, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. There remains in the here and now a Sabbath rest for the people of God under the inaugurated new covenant because someone has entered his rest ceasing from his works. Who is the someone who has entered his rest if it doesn't refer to believers? I already let the cat out of the bag. I get that. Um, I, I think identifying this individual in verse 10 as our Lord Jesus Christ preaches better and produces better hymnology, so therefore it must be the right view. It does preach better, and it does produce better hymnology. We're, I'm going to read to you at least one hymn this hour and, and one the next. But I think... Uh, referring or or seeing the person here in verse 10 as our Lord Jesus does better um, with the context, with the flow of the argumentation, and and it does produce better hymnology, but that's down the road someplace. There is a remaining Sabbath day to be kept under the inaugurated new covenant for the people of God on the earth now because Christ, who is God, has entered his rest via his first day resurrection, ceasing from the work of accomplishing redemption, which is, by the way, a new creation, just as God rested from his works of the old creation. That's a paraphrase, okay, of verses 9 and 10. Who is he referring to in verse 10 when he says, for the one who has entered his rest, as noted, some refer this to the believer who has rested from his works, but as I said before, The interpretation would compare God's ceasing from his work of creation and resting with our ceasing from our sinful works and going to heaven. Which, you know, you can do that comparison. I don't don't think it works with verse 10. When God ceased from his work of creation, it was not because it was bad, or right? When we cease from our wicked works, it's because they're bad. When God ceased from his work of creation, he called it all good and then rested. So I don't think making the comparison between our sinful works or even our mixed works uh, as believers, you realize our works, our good works are mixed with imperfections. Uh, You know, if we took it that way, then verse 10 would be talking about Christians now, not ceasing when they were unbelievers and became believers, but ceasing from their works as believers, which are mixed or tainted with error, when they rest from those, that is when they die, they enter God's rest. Which is true, but I don't think it works. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. God was refreshed, uh, Scripture tells us, rested, that is, he approved what he had done. God ceasing from his work of creation and his subsequent rest does not compare with the believers ceasing from sinful works and taking rest in God. Believers don't cease from their work and call it very good. Believers are not refreshed as they look back at their sinful works. They don't approve them. So the re- this, this kind of rest finds no parallel with God's rest. This creaturely, this is me in the text. We want to insert ourselves in texts, don't we? That's me in verse 10. Uh, you're not that important. No. Listen to um, 
an old sage on this. The text presents a parallel between the one who has entered his rest and has himself rested from his works and God who ceased from his work of creation. This cannot apply to believers. It destroys the parallel. The writer is speaking of an individual, the one who himself, the one who himself, his, who has entered his rest. A single person is here expressed on whose account the things mentioned are asserted. And of this change of phrase, there can be no reason be given, but only to signify the introduction of a singular person. That was uh, John Owen. To maintain the parallel, it must be an individual who has entered his rest and rested from his works as God did from his. The only individual who can fit this parallel is our Lord. You remember, I, I say this a lot, probably every Lord's Day. Um, sufferings, glory. Humiliation, exaltation. Obedience, Unto resurrection. Sufferings, glory. Sufferings, third day resurrection. Work, what's the next word? Rest. And the work rest motif wasn't instituted by Jesus or Paul, who uses that language, or Peter, who uses that language, or the prophets from whom the Lord and Peter and Paul were referring to, it actually goes back, how, how far back does it go? Besides the eternal decree of God. I mean, in scripture, it goes back to creation, doesn't it? But what happened to the first creation? God spoiled. What do we need? A new creation. Who, who, bring, who ushers in new creation? Well, the United States of America does. Christian country. New Jerusalem, that's us. No. No, can he do, you know? The Lord Jesus, right? He is the author of the new creation. He brings the sin-stained, spoiled, old creation to a new state of existence. And if you want to see it before it's here in its fullness, you look at him. Because he suffered, and then he entered glory. He worked, and he rested. Taking both clauses at the beginning of verse 10 is referring to Christ as the best option for a bunch of reasons. Once Christ's work was accomplished, he entered his rest. And we must remember that Christ is God. So this is, this is where our Christology is important, okay? So this is a divine rest, right? The, the, the person of the Son, according to his human nature, gets translated into a glorious state, but that person is also God. So this is a divine work of mediation, of suffering, of obedience, and a divine rest. Destroy this temple. Oh, there's building language right there. Right there. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, isn't that... If we were there, okay, we would see flesh and bones and hear a voice coming from a guy we called Jesus. And we would hear these words, in Aramaic probably, Kill me, and I'll put my soul back into my body on the third day and come out of the grave. It's like, dude, people can't do that. Well, if we have this two-natured redeemer, the person is God, and he assumes to himself a real human nature. He can say things with his human lips 
with human language and his vocal cords, he can say things by virtue of his humanity about his deity. Where's Lazarus? Lazarus, remember that? Where'd you lay him? It's like, huh? Uh, Who was it? Athanasius. He asks for his body according to the manhood. He raises his body according to the godhood. That's Lazarus. That's Jesus. Where, Where is he? So when he accomplishes, when redemption is accomplished, the Son of God incarnate for us and for our salvation enters into his exaltation, his rest. When the first creation is accomplished, God enters his rest. Old creation has work unto rest. The beginning of the new creation worked unto rest. Just as we could say God entered his rest on the seventh day at creation, thus instituting the Sabbath day by positive example and a pledge of glory to come. So Christ entered his rest on the first day, the day he rose from the dead, the day his new creative, redemptive work was accomplished, thus instituting the Sabbath rest for the new covenant people of God by his own example. Now, I said I was going to read some hymns. I'm not going to read the hymns. Actually, I'm going to read... No, yes, I'm going to read one of the hymns. And I want you to hear some things in these hymns. Uh, I'm just going to read one of them, and I'll uh, I'll keep the other one. Um, I'll I'll keep the other one until the next hour. But notice the creational and new creational language in both of the hymns, the one now and the one later. As well, listen for Eden-like language, Listen for Canaan-like language and listen for futuristic type of language. Both of them are written by Anglicans in the 19th century. O day of rest and gladness, O day of joy and light, O balm of care and sadness, most beautiful, most bright, on thee the high and lowly, through ages joined in tune, sing holy, holy, holy to the great God triune. On thee... At the creation, the light first had its birth, interestingly. On thee, for our salvation, Christ rose from depths of earth. On thee, our Lord victorious, the Spirit sent from heaven. Pentecost was on the first day of the week. And thus on thee, most glorious, a triple light was given. Thou art a port protected from storms that round us rise, a garden intersected with streams of paradise. Thou art a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand from thee like Pisgah's mountain view the promised land. Today on weary nations the heavenly manna falls to holy convocations the silver trumpet calls where gospel light is glowing with pure and radiant beams and living water flowing with soul-refreshing streams. New graces ever gaining. From this, our day of rest, we reach the rest remaining to spirits of the blessed. To Holy Ghost be praises. To Father and to Son, the church, her voice upraises. To thee, blessed three in one. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Even the hard sections, difficult as Peter acknowledged, some of what Paul wrote is hard to understand, but not impossible. And whatever the most important things from the text that we are to know, help us to know them, help us to see even from the passage that was read and proclaimed, the the, the great uh, swath of redemptive history and the movement from creation to fall and curse and sin to restoration, redemption, and ultimate glory in the new heavens 
and the new earth and help us to see that it is not we ourselves that bring this sin-stained world to a better place, but it is you through the incarnate Son of God who will bring many sons to glory. Bless your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.